The UK is ranked number 21 in the world for daily death rates. The recorded average is 1,700 per day, giving around 600,000 deaths in the UK alone per year. China, of course, is number one with 29,000 deaths per day. India with 25,000. The US with 7,000 deaths per day. In 2022, the average age at death in the UK was 82. On average, two and a half people are being born for every one that dies in the United Kingdom. Sadly, there are 18 suicides per day in our country. The biggest killer of males and females in the UK is heart disease. In the UK, one in five males die before 65. And so our subject this evening, it is a a welcome subject for us in a world where we are affected by loss and suffering, by bereavement and pain. We come to think of Christ prophesied here as the mighty victor. The section in Isaiah chapters 24 to 27 give us insight into the final judgment. Known by scholars as the book of Apocalypse, it continually brings us to the final judgment of our world. They contain prophecies about the return of our Lord and the judgment of the nations and the ushering in of that eternal state of glory for his people. We know from New Testament writings that a number of events will happen when Christ returns. Jesus will come from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Satan will be defeated by the Lord in Revelation 20. And the dead will be raised by the power of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15. And these aspects of the final judgment are indicated in these chapters in Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. Perhaps there is an initial and partial fulfillment in the return of Israel from exile in the 6th century. Perhaps there is a a partial fulfillment in the experience of Christians as we are spiritually resurrected into life. The Reformation Study Bible comments on these chapters, these promises are both already realized but then adds, and still to come. Their full fulfillment is yet to be realized, as 1 Corinthians 15 indicates. And so we have in these chapters references to the return of Jesus from heaven. 25 verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. 26, 21, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The defeat of Satan is another element of the final judgment that is indicated in 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and the dragon, language which the book of Revelation uses to describe the final defeat of Satan at the final judgment. The gathering of God's people from all ends of the earth, a further element of the second coming of Jesus, is mentioned in 2713. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown, 
and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. In our visual age and society, these chapters are wonderfully useful for us. Screens, TVs, tablets, PowerPoint are all the experience of our lives and of our day. Images are such a a crucial aspect and dimension of our experience. And so these chapters, given in such graphic terminology and language, are useful for us in understanding the final judgment. They will grip the minds of adults and children more than thrusting a heavy, tightly worded, well-footnoted, ponderous, academic, theological tome into their hands. Our focus is on the words of verse 8 and 7 in chapter 25, quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and applied to the Lord Jesus there. We read, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The Apostle Paul relates the final resurrection of believers unto life to this prophecy in Isaiah. He sees that in that final resurrection into glory of our bodies in the future, a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 25 verse 8. Jesus coming in power with the angels and the trumpet of God will bring our bodies from the graves into glorious life. Thus the apostle indicates that these chapters 24 to 27 have their fullest fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus and in his victory and in our victory through him over death. And so we should not be afraid to turn to these chapters for comfort for ourselves or to read these chapters to comfort those who are bereaved. They have something wonderful to say to us in our time, in our life. Sometimes we have the view that all the light of truth is only in the New Testament. That is why the illustration of B.B. Warfield about the Trinity can be a little misleading. We overlook sometimes. We do not ponder. We superficially read references in the Old Testament to doctrine. We go straight to the clearer passages in the New Testament perhaps. But as we ponder this evening this reference to the final resurrection, to victory over death, we will see that the Old Testament enriches our understanding of the New Testament. The rule of New Testament scholars is that whenever you come across a quotation from the Old Testament, go and explore the context of that Old Testament quotation. The Old Testament context often provides a biblical illustration for the New Testament reference. 
The preacher, the reader, the Christian doesn't need to dig an illustration out of the Daily Mail. But the Old Testament reference often provides additional insights to the doctrine being considered as indicated here. This general principle is a point which non-psalm singers often miss. The Psalms, far from not mentioning Jesus, actually supply details about the emotions, the psychology, the mind, the heart, the will of Jesus that are nowhere found in the Gospels. The Psalms complement the historical accounts of the Gospels. They are not superseded by them. They are like the flesh that covers the skeleton of the historical narrative of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So here, Jesus will raise the dead, Paul asserts, dogmatically and clinically. But Isaiah tells us something of what it will be like. Think first of all, together of the damage of death in verse 7. The damage of death. The menace of death is indicated in the seventh verse of chapter 25 by the impact which it has on the survivors. They mourn the loss of loved ones. And this mourning is indicated by the words covering and veil. It's a covering and a veil expressive of the grief of loss. Both elements express mourning for a loved one. The covering is put on to indicate the brokenness of the heart. The reference might be to a shroud connected to death certainly anticipates a reference to death in the next verse. The image of a person lying or a nation lying under a shroud perhaps is emphasizing how close to death we all are. See the language, the covering that is cast over all peoples. We are all mortal. We are not promised tomorrow. It is as if we are living under this, this shroud. Such is the proximity of our lives. Such is the mortality of our existence. Or, or perhaps the idea is that, that we regularly are in a state of mourning for, for others who lose loved ones. There's hardly a week passes that, that, that there's someone whom we know in our life that passes on. And so in a, a very real sense, every nation, all peoples, is under this covering, a symbol of loss. Perhaps it could be a reference to the head covering worn as a sign of mourning in the Old Testament. King David in 2 Samuel 15, as he experienced the rebellion of Absalom and many of his soldiers, he went up, the verses say, on, on the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. There's a covering expressive of loss, bereavement, and pain, indicating humility, 
lowliness, sorrow. Such is the damage of death. The impact that it has on us, that that we express this in an outward way, in, in the garments that we wear and the special clothing that we put on. Similarly, in verse 7, the reference to the veil refers to the custom of wearing a veil in mourning or sorrow. 2 Samuel 19 verse 5, Absalom was slain. The king's son was killed. And all Israel puts on a veil indicating visibly their humility, their sorrow, their sadness, their loss. The damage that death effects, the impact, the power of grief in our hearts and souls expressed here in the covering, in the veil, in the clothing that is worn. But the mighty victor, he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will remove the veil that is spread over all nations. This experience of proximity to death and others, this experience of of knowing that we're not promised tomorrow, this experience of living with our mortality day in and day out will be taken away. And the powerful and glorious coming of Jesus as he eradicates the damage of death, the impact, the grief, the loss and pain, the emotions which are deep and powerful that we experience. You see how this expression of grief and pain is is so widespread. Verse 7 emphasizes it's cast over all peoples. The veil is spread over all nations. This damage of death is universal. The sorrow, the loss, the pain, it's rife in every nation, in every family, in every life. The signs of mourning are experienced. We all live in the shadow of death. Pain and loss touches every home, every life, every nation. Sometimes by war, sometimes by accident. Sometimes by illness, sometimes by suicide, sometimes by old age. Nations would love to remove this covering from their lands, to get away from this sense of weakness and mortality and the experience of pain. Advances in diet, exercise, health systems, and benefits have resulted in in, in people living longer. Developments in medication have added many years to many lives. The average lifespan is increasing. But inevitably, death will come to us all. This covering, this veil, it's over all peoples. It's over all the nations. That challenges us, doesn't it? challenges us just how we live our lives. I've never adopted the practice which some have adopted of buying the daily or weekly newspaper or logging on each day to check the death columns. Some people do that, maybe you do that. It's just a bit too morose for me. Uh, 
I've not adopted the practice of Albert Moeller, uh, an American theologian who keeps a skull, it's obviously the replica of one, uh, on his desk to remind him every day of his mortality. But I imagine both practices have benefits in focusing the mind and keeping the person grounded. For this is our world. This is our life. We're not here forever. I do like the approach which Charles Simeon, uh, the outstanding uh, English preacher of the 18th century, adopted. He hung a picture of one of his students, Henry Martin, who who died young. Uh, He hung it on the wall of his study. uh, And Simeon commented that this student appeared to look down on him every day and say, don't trifle. Don't trifle. So how should this damage of death, this covering which is on all the nations, this veil which is on all the peoples, how should it affect us? It's got to affect our priorities, hasn't it? It's got to impact our values. We know today could be our last day. The recent passing of people connected to this congregation emphasizes that we might never see six day. How then are we to spend our life? To put family before self. To put others before self. To put Jesus before self. It's got to affect our priorities. It's got to affect our purchases. From time to time, we should probably open our wardrobes and say to ourselves, I'm going to leave all this one day. Last week, I looked through the library of Knox Heinemann. As I did, I had the thought that, that I also will leave my library. And along with that thought, I, I had the thought that what godly books Knox left behind. What an insight into the mind and soul of your former minister these books are. It's got to affect our serving the Lord. One of the elders sitting before session to give his res- or one of the elders, men who've been called to be an elder, sitting before session to give his response to the call to the eldership, made this very point. He said in his thoughts, What would I say to Jesus at the last day when he said to me, I gave you this opportunity to serve and you never took it. Are we grasping the opportunities that we have to serve our Lord? Are we giving our best in his service as a minister, as an elder, as a deacon, as a Sabbath school teacher, as a Christian, as a parent, as a daughter, a son, a sibling. The reality of our mortality described in verse 7 has got to impact our lives. It should impact our witnessing as well, shouldn't it? The spiritual discipline we're considering at our midweeks, witnessing to others, a driver in that witnessing has got to be our own mortality and the mortality of unbelievers around us. 
Robert Murray McShane lived with these two things in a very exaggerated way in his life. Ministering in Dundee where there was desperately poor sanitation. Fever was regular in the streets around his church and home. He himself knew from from his experience of tuberculosis that his life was going to be very short. And these two things came together. And he witnessed with earnestness in his short life. And you and I, in a less exaggerated manner, live with these two things. Our own weakness and the uncertainty that our neighbor might not see tomorrow. The damage of death is set out here. Secondly, the defeat of death. In this wonderful eighth verse, striking and intentionally startling, it gives us this tremendous hope and assurance. He, that is Jesus, will swallow up death forever. At his return and second coming, he will raise his people to eternal glory. And death for them will be taken away forever. This is a a verse which stands alone in its promise, verse 8. That there is no conjunction to the previous verse. It is set out here. It's to be noticed. It's startling and striking for us. We're to see it. We're to come across it. It it, it causes us to, to stop and pause. Such is its richness, its promise It's hope. He will swallow. Is in a perfect tense, meaning he has swallowed up death forever. Such is the certainty of his promise, the magnificence of this event. The verse itself is far clearer than the verse we've already considered in verse 7. There is metaphor that we've wrestled with. What is this covering? What is this veil? What is the meaning of these pictures and metaphors? The writer here now steps away from that blurry picture and promise that he's given in verse 7. And he comes now to state this with clarity. He will swallow up death. Forever. He's moved away from the effects of death to the reality of death. He uses the definite article in this phrase in verse 8. He will swallow up the death. The death that fills us with fear. The death that brings us pain and remorse and, and loss. The death that haunts us. The death that troubles us. The death that, that can unhinge us. He will swallow thee death with all its stresses, with all its pains forever. He's used this term before of the defeat of Egypt, the old enemy of Israel, the taskmasters which subdued them and tormented them for 400 years. The Lord in his power would take that enemy and swallow it up. And here he comes again to that image and that idea of conquest and victory of this greater enemy of the people of God. And the Lord in his grace and sovereignty and power will swallow up death forever. It will be swallowed up by the glorious resurrection of the body of believers 
where every vestige of weakness and pain and mortality will be expunged. We united to our glorified spirits will rise into eternal life. Till now, in the history of the world, death has swallowed up everyone else. But at the last day, death itself will be swallowed up. Genesis 2.17, death was that punishment promised for those who would disobey God. It includes all the evils, all the sorrows, all the weakness that accompanies our life in this world, living under the judgment of God. But when death is swallowed up, all those accompanying dimensions of death will be removed. It will be swallowed up forever. 1 Corinthians 15, as you've noticed, it changes the word to victory. He will swallow up death in victory. The ideas are the same, and the Hebrew word allows for a whole range of translation. Victory forever. It will be a final victory, a permanent victory. Revelation 21 verse 4 states it clearly. There shall be no more death. Tears, verse 8 says, will be wiped away from all faces. As a parent comforts and soothes a child who has fallen, who is crying, so Lord Jesus will wipe all tears from the faces of his children. He'll remove from our lives everything that causes us sorrow. The assurance of forgiveness and the removal of evil and death at the final resurrection will effect the wiping away of all our tears. And the reproach which we can experience will be taken away. That is the failings of believers which cause the world to deride us and criticize us and question our commitment to our Savior. Such indwelling sin will be removed from our lives. Never again will reproach haunt us or pain us. The defeat of death. He will swallow up death forever. And that future hope should affect us now. This glorious resurrection should impact our lives now. We read this at the graveside. We mention to the grieving families, I am the resurrection and the life. This future hope should impact our life now. I was interested in the, the end of the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. Medical doctor, of course, who went on to become a, a wonderful preacher he had cancer at 68 and he resigned his charge in Westminster Chapel and spent the next 12 years serving the Lord and right across the world, recognizing that this was extra time that God had given to him. And then he had another type of cancer at the age of 80. They told his family not to pray for his healing because this assurance 
of heaven and final resurrection impacted his life. What a victory this will be. What a triumph. Death that has swallowed so many will itself be swallowed. You probably don't know, most of you, that there was a a well-publicized boxing match on last night. Chris Eubank Jr. fighting against Liam Smith. And Chris Eubank Jr. had not been defeated since 2018. But Liam Smith beat him in the fourth round. The conqueror was conquered. Death is conquering causing us so much pain. But here is the assurance that Christ is greater and he will swallow up death forever. Lastly, the deliverer from death. God is described in in verse number six as as preparing a a wonderful feast on this mountain. The, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. This is the context of this promise and this is the image that's often used of the the final judgment and the glorious blessings of God's people. After all the trials and pains and difficulties and sorrows, we will sit down and fellowship with Almighty God at a glorious feast and enjoy his presence and blessing. And one element of that feast One item on that table of rich food and glorious provision will be the conquest of death, the resurrection of the body of believers into eternal life, the element of death which has brought such sorrow to families and to people and to individuals and to believers, which destroys and dilutes and attacks any occasion for joy will itself be removed. It's it's as if the writer is anticipating our question. We read of this feast in verse 6 and we say, how can we enjoy that eternal abundance of God when death has caused us so much pain? The writer says, there will be no more death. There will be nothing to impact our joy for eternity in the presence of God. And who will do this? Who will effect this? The one described in verse 9. In that day, the day of final resurrection, when the graves are opened and we stand in glorified bodies, shoulder to shoulder, and entering into the presence of God, it will be said on that day, Behold, Look, pay attention, take our eyes off the the wonderful beauty of one another and let us all focus on the centerpiece of this majestic time. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus will be center stage, defeating for us that last enemy of death and bringing us into the presence of God. The song is echoed 
in Revelation 19.1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. When we think of, of this resurrection, we, we think of our, ourselves, don't we? We think of how, how wonderful this will be to enter into a sphere, into an era where death will no longer infiltrate our life, affect our joy, break our relationships with those whom we love and the one we love. And it's right to think of what it means for us. But think of what it means for God. The final triumph. Death has destroyed his creation. Death has infiltrated the bodies of his people. But he will have the final say. He will be victorious and be seen to be greater than all in that final resurrection. But as we close tonight, there is another side to the story, isn't there? There's a dark side to the final judgment, isn't there? And Isaiah gives us that in the last three verses. Moab is mentioned in verse 10 as representative of unbelievers, of enemies of the church, of opposers to God people, God's people. And what will happen to unbelievers, to those who are not on Mount Zion, but who are across that divide on this other mountain in verse 10 to 12, in Mount Moab? They will be humbled. They will be judged. They will be brought down. The resurrection to glory will not be universal. All will not be recipients of God's blessing. All will not be seated down at that eternal banquet. Moab, unbelievers, will be outside. They'll be across, away from the place of blessing. Mount Zion, geographically, it stands on one side of the Jordan. And this mountain of Moab stands on the other side. And there's a deep valley between the two. On Mount Zion, there is blessing and resurrection and no more death. But on Mount Moab, there is judgment and humbling. Just as straw is trampled down, verse 10, and left in a pool of water to putrefy, so Moab will be humbled and brought low. Every effort to save oneself will fail. They'll attempt to swim, but, but this will be to, to no avail. The goods which they've secured the, by the skill of their hands will not secure their freedom, the prophet says. Their mighty strongholds will be defeated. Every argument, every effort, every attempt to rescue themselves will fail. Prophet ends in verse 12 with three verbs to describe the total destruction that is inescapable. God will bring down. Jesus will lay low. Christ will cast to the ground. All unbelievers in that day. And the irreversible nature, 
The final eternal consequences of unbelief is emphasized in the closing phrase to the dust. Only Jesus can deliver us from that final judgment. Only Jesus who has come into this world and on Mount Zion gave himself as the sacrifice for sin in our place. Only Jesus by his blood and righteousness can make us ready for that day and give us this certain hope that we in that final resurrection will be raised by the power of Christ to glory. On what mountain will we be? The mountain of faith and blessing. The mountain of unbelief and judgment.